following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. This is a powerful topic, one that has captivated generations of people, primarily because in reality, the study of dreams, internal experience, and the awakening of consciousness within our interior has very ancient traditions, very profound roots that are not merely a New Age novelty. Instead, there have been many practitioners amongst diverse religious traditions who have learned to experience the reality of the dreaming state and to verify from their own internal work how to receive guidance about truly pertinent problems within our daily life. Anyone who approaches the study of dreams is obviously very interested and invested in understanding some type of experience, some type of inner vision. Perhaps in childhood, we experience a dream of vivid intensity, of profound clarity, of deep mysticism. And this demonstrates for us that what is often lacking in many traditional forms of religion is precisely this experiential dynamic of knowing for oneself higher mysteries, higher truths so that with this knowledge, we can orient ourselves in having a deeper, more profound, and rich spiritual life. Out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, astral projections, lucid dreams have been known by many names. It is known as dream yoga from the Sanskrit yug 
to unite, to bind. But to bind with what? All religions teach that from the experiences of their founders, that there is a divinity inside whom we can access and understand from experience. We could reunite with a truly higher principle. And in that way, we experience genuine religion from the Latin religare, meaning to rebind. It's the same meaning as East and West, different terms, the same principle. Even the Arabic deen, meaning religion, has to do with this type of experience. It is judgment, but not of a tyrannical God who punishes those who don't obey a certain code, but instead it's our own inner process of judging our own faults. So that by comprehending our own conditions and mistakes, our own flaws of character, we can truly awaken our full potential and thereby experience the realities of what people have called lucid dreams, astral projections, etc. In the East, this term is known as Svapna Darshana, the yoga of the dream state. Svapna indicates dreaming sleep. And Darshana, Darshan, is auspicious sight, viewing, or appearance. It is the reverence and the awe that the soul feels when in that state and is directly communicating with our innermost divinity. And if you want examples of what this is presenting, we can look at the stories of Moses, such as receiving on a mountain a prophetic vision where he received the Decalogue, a guidance and instruction for humanity. Or in the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna, seeing Krishna when he asked, show me your true form. Show me who you really are. And then a vision, an infinitude of figures, men, women, children, full of beautiful forms. This is an exact representation of how the divine abstract becomes concrete. And this is processed in the medium of dreams where internal principle becomes manifested reality. So in that state, we feel genuine reverence, great respect. It is auspiciousness. It is the amazement of an awakened consciousness before the divine. We also have terms like theophany, the manifestation or visions of the divine within Hinduism. And darshan can also mean an opportunity or occasion of seeing a holy person or the image of a deity. So not only do we have our own inner divinity inside, our own particular unique being, 
There have been many people in history who have perfected themselves. We call them saints. We call them prophets. We call them masters, Buddhas, gods. In the dream state, you can also learn to communicate with those who have fully awakened in that realm, who have really refined their conduct so that we can get insight in how to live. In Tibetan Buddhism, dream yoga is very prevalent. Vasubandhu and Asanga taught five paths to liberation, the third being Darshana Marga, the path of seeing. It is based on facts, based on the direct perception of that state in which the consciousness, devoid of any type of filter or obscurity, any vagueness, one sees the reality of that state for what it is. I know some people, often when they reflect on dreams, they describe perhaps a repetition of their day or a nightmare, a chaotic state, dreams of fear or suffering. While these dreams in themselves demonstrate a quality of our mind that are often ignored, we can learn to take advantage of the dreaming state to understand these deep traumas, perhaps, experiences. And by clearing away any type of subjective states of mind, we see directly what's there, the reality of those states, without any type of filter or condition of our own mind. So most times when we dream, we're seeing our own psychological conditioning. Usually, as I said, repetitions of our day, perhaps a memory, something very fleeting. Instead, through darshana marga, dream yoga, we take the potential of that inner reality and make it something amplified, clear, without vagueness. We make it something penetrative and profound. This is accomplished by learning to practice certain exercises. It's like training in any job or going to the gym. You can learn to train your consciousness not to merely project its own desires into that reality, but learn to see what's actually there. And in that way, you're no longer dreaming, you're awake. You're perceiving that dimension, that state of being without any type of confusion or doubt. We do this through what's known as, in Tibetan Buddhism, as sadhana. It is daily consistent practice. And in this way, we perform a type of tantra, which is a very popular term in you know, East and West especially. It means continuum. It is a perpetual flow and flux 
of perception. So in the beginning, we may find that we don't remember dreams, we don't perceive our dreams, we don't understand them. They're fleeting, they're fragmented or confused. We can learn to become, through training, awake to that state so that by awakening our potential consciousness, we augment it. And then we learn to be in a perpetual state of remembrance, to be awake at all times. Even when our physical body goes to sleep, we as a consciousness are awake. In Tibetan, it is known as Milam, from the Yingma or Kagyu schools of Tibetan Buddhism. So these are very ancient traditions, very deep roots. This image here is popularized within any Tibetan Buddhist monastery. It's known as the nine stages of meditative concentration, in which you perceive a monk ascending up a spiral path towards the heights of a mountain. And he's chasing after an elephant. It's a symbol. It's a symbol of how, in the beginning of approaching spirituality, we have a very distracted mind, very scattered, very dispersed. We tend to be very identified with memory and associative thought or different fears, different chains of reactions to life, and never examining the source. And so in every uh, Tibetan monastery, you find this image, whereby slowly training the mind and learning to overcome its own obstructions, its own faults, we clarify it and perfect it so that, as you see in this image, the elephant goes to sleep. The mind is relaxed. No disturbance no ripple. It is in perfect equipoise, perfect concentration to be able to focus on one thing without being distracted, and its highest form is effortless. And in that way, the consciousness within the meditator enters the dreaming state, but with lucidity, with clarity. There are many examples within the Bible about dreams. We have the famous story of Jacob's ladder, where Jacob went to sleep with his head on a stone, and he dreamed a vision. I'd like to relate this excerpt for you. And Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night, because the sun was set. And he took off the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it from the book of Genesis. What's interesting is that these are symbols. Seeing a ladder from earth to heaven. It's the same symbol as in Tibetan Buddhism. From being in an inferior, lower state of being and life and learning to go up in oneself. Perhaps in the beginning we are very afflicted by many problems in life. 
We lack solutions to difficult issues. We don't know how to resolve conflict, perhaps in our relationships, perhaps in our communities. And if we introspect and examine ourselves, we can learn to discover that there is potential to, again, develop and awaken a type of consciousness, which, as this foundation, grants us access to a higher way of being. And so, like this dream, Jacob symbolically saw angels ascending and descending, levels and qualities of being, of life, of internal life, of internal spirituality. We also find, very famously, the book of Daniel, where you find the emphasis of interpreting dreams, understanding dreams, understanding our experiences. Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And you see in this image a very famous depiction of King Balthazar, who was the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, a little history in terms of Judaism, you find that King Nebuchadnezzar had sieged the kingdom of Judea back in 586 or 587 before the Common Era. Nebuchadnezzar was from the kingdom of Babylon, and they sacked the sacred temple of Jerusalem, the first temple of Solomon, and took the Jews there, brought them to Babylon. Daniel was among them. And Daniel was renowned for his ability to interpret dreams, which made him rise to prominence within that kingdom. Primarily, the story that I like to relate to you is when Balthazar was hosting a feast in which they used the sacred vessels of the, the Temple of Jerusalem for their party, which was a blasphemy, according to the scripture. So according to this, they, Balthazar and the people in the feast saw a vision that they couldn't interpret. The letters or the words, mene mene tekel uparsin, appeared. This is very much a dreamlike state, a representation. And so the men and sages and astrologers could not resolve its interpretation, what it meant, its significance. And it was the queen who stepped in to say, O king, live forever. Let not thy thoughts trouble thee, nor let thy countenance be changed. There is a man in thy kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of thy father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods was found in him, whom the king Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, the king, I say, thy father, made master of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers, for as much as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding, interpreting of dreams, and showing of hard sentences, and dissolving of doubts, were found in the same Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. So dreams do not necessarily have to reflect a type of disorder 
or confusion, chaos in the mind. Instead, we can receive insight in dreams from a superior origin. And in that way, we, by practices, experience, interpret, and decipher the meaning so that we can better orient our life. You find out-of-body experiences even in the New Testament. Corinthians, especially uh, the sayings of Paul of Tarsus, he mentions, it is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ about 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell. God knoweth, such a one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth. How that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for man to utter. Even within the Quran, you find the same teaching. All the Abrahamic traditions, but even in the mysticism of the Middle East, you find similar explanations. And with him are the keys of the secret things. None knows them but he. He knows whatever is on the land and then in the sea. And no leaf falls, but he knows it. Neither is there a grain in the darknesses of the earth, nor a thing green and sere but it is noted in a distinct writing. It is he who taketh your souls at night and knows what ye have merited in the day. Then he awakens you therein, that the set life term may be fulfilled. Then unto him shall ye return, and then shall he declare to you that which ye have wrought. What's very beautiful about this verse is that it's stating that by learning to adopt and practice superior ethics, compassion, kindness, divine love, we get rewarded with experiences. We are shown in dreams the quality of a particular psychological work of our behaviors in which you get symbols about this is where you're at in your level of being in that ladder from going from earth to heaven. We get insights and we get inspired because we're being shown in a very direct way what we can do about suffering. It is a law that taketh the souls of men at death and those that die not, he takes during their sleep. Those on whom he has passed the decree of death, he keeps back from returning to life. But the rest he sends to their bodies for a term appointed. Verily in this are signs for those who reflect. So what are these signs? It is inner visions, dreams, experiences. There are references even amongst the Sufis especially, who are the mystics of Islam. Ibn Arabi is really renowned as the greatest of the Sufi teachers. He gave some very interesting examples of what we're talking about as well. This is from the Meccan revelations. Know that these bodies are the coffins of the spirits and what beclouds them. They are what veil them so that they do not witness the spiritual world and are not witnessed. What's interesting is that this term witnessing has to do with awakening, experiencing, in its most profound sense. 
doesn't mean believing in a tradition or disbelieving, but actually seeing for oneself what diverse religious traditions teach. So our body veils our perceptions. We're often very conditioned by our senses. But when you go to sleep, you abandon that. You learn to see with internal senses. And therefore, you begin to witness higher realities. So the spirits do not see, nor are they seen, except though being parted from these bodily tombs. From the Quran, Surah 102, verse 2. By becoming oblivious to them in their absorption in spiritual things. And this simply means entering a state of meditation, falling asleep physically, and awakening consciousness in the internal worlds. Not through physical separation, which is death. I know there is an assumption in our modern culture that we cannot know what will happen when we die. Primarily because the argument is no one has ever come back to talk about it. What's ignored by that assumption is that, as we'll talk a little bit later, the same dimension or state that is accessed when one dies is precisely when we dream. So by learning to awaken in our dreams, we can awaken after death. Therefore, since they have inner vision, when they become oblivious to witnessing their physical bodies, then they witness the one who gives them being in the very act of witnessing, being conscious of themselves. So while religion has talked about out-of-body experiences and mystical states, modern science is still trying to catch up. What's interesting is that the Dalai Lama, who was a great master of Tibetan Buddhism, but also a practitioner of dream yoga, who has a lot of experience about this type of science, has been making a lot of effort in different conferences to talk with scientists to get them to investigate in a scientific way with different instruments about these types of testimonies. Now, the problem is there tends to be a lot of skepticism and doubt, which when you are trying to scientifically verify phenomena, you want to be very rigorous, obviously. So the Dalai Lama was talking to a Harvard psychiatrist by the name of Alan Hobson. It's known as the Mind and Life Conference. I like to relate to some of this at length and talk about this. So returning to the Mind and Life Conference, in his conversation with Harvard psychiatrist Alan Hobson, the Dalai Lama raised the issue of knowledge obtained in dreams. The Dalai Lama said, I know some Tibetans who lived in Tibet prior to the 1959 uprising. Before their escape from Tibet, they did not know about the natural trails and passes by which to get over the Himalayas into India. Some of these people I met had very clear dreams of these tracks, and years later, when they actually had to follow the actual trails, they found that they were already familiar with them because of the very clear dreams that they had had previously. Alan Hobson replies, this is a so-called precognitive dream. And there are many examples of this in the West as well. I would like to defer discussion of that until later, and as it is an important question. So unfortunately, there's a tendency in some scientists to want to dismiss certain propositions because they seem very unlikely, or they don't fit within a type of dogma, even of a materialistic type. 
But fortunately, there are a lot of people who are pushing to understand these types of phenomena, how physical facts align with internal experience. In that way, we learn to develop conviction, verification, understanding. So as we talked about in some of the previous quotes from religious scriptures, we learn from practice how these types of dreams coincide with certain evidence in the physical world. And that gives us what's called genuine faith. Not a belief, not a theory, but we know. And it's that type of understanding which really pushes one to want to investigate and to inquire and to look into these types of phenomena. A while later, the Dalai Lama returned to the other phenomena that are taken for granted by the Tibetans because in Tibetan Buddhist culture, these types of studies are very commonplace. In the West, we're very much alienated from a lot of religious principles, unfortunately, due to the perhaps bad example of many religions, institutions. The Dalai Lama said, there are certain people who feel they have out-of-body experiences while dreaming. Alan Hobson, this has not been studied in the laboratory, but it is easy to imagine how such a state could arise since it is possible to hallucinate practically anything during dreaming. The Dalai Lama continued to press the issue. The Dalai Lama said, there are accounts of people experiencing this sense of leaving their body, actually perceiving things in the external world, and later being able to recall events that presumably took place there, even to the point of being able to read a book in someone else's house. Has there been no scientific investigation of this type of testimony? Ellen Hobson admits that is correct. There has been no scientific investigation of these. But I would like to discuss this issue because I think that the issue of precognitive dreams, out-of-body experiences, and claims of previous lives all have a problem in common for science. The question is, how can we advance any of these claims above the status of what we would call testimony and anecdote? Dean Radin makes a very interesting point here. This exchange highlights a central problem in dealing with discussions of miracles. Scientists meeting with the Dalai Lama are undoubtedly interested in anything he has to say, but having been selected as scientific and scholarly experts in their fields, they probably feel a certain pressure to behave like experts, even when they don't know what they're talking about. Some examples of how our own inner dreams can validate physical facts, and that is a foundation of genuine faith. My wife and I, before we were friends, had many dreams about each other. We both related in our friendship and eventually relationship that we had certain experiences about each other that were really profound, very beautiful, and symbolic, archetypal. And as I was relating certain experiences or even learning from my wife, certain experiences that I had in, from my training in this science came to my mind and I realized the connection, even though this type of experience happened like 10 years ago and it shocked me because I immediately knew the person I was going to marry. But 
We let the relationship unfold despite our knowledge, like a flower, letting itself show its own innate beauty. And so that's an example, or one of many, in which you can have a dream that comes true. And what validates it is that you look at the diverse symbols that are presented and study them, meditate upon them, and look at the connections between the facts. And that's what really is very moving. But there are lots of examples in which scientists are making the effort to validate these types of perceptions from a materialistic basis, which is wonderful. You can find it even on Netflix, there's a show called Surviving Death, where you have the testimony of people who've died and come back, describing the very similar experiences amongst many people. You also can look at a documentary on Amazon Prime, it's called Third Eye Spies. A little bit different topic, but it does relate to a lot of these principles. Now, as Dean Radin states, the discussion panel's answer to the Dalai Lama's questions about reincarnation, precognition, and veridical out-of-body experiences might have been a more modest, I don't know. Instead, they asserted that science has not studied these issues, or they gave the impression that the reason there is no scientific evidence is because the beliefs are not true. In fact, there is substantial evidence, and the results confirm that at least some of the Tibetans' beliefs are almost certainly true. So building off this understanding or question about are out-of-body experiences provable, we can talk about a very interesting teaching from Sufism. They talk about three certainties. They discuss how there are different forms of knowledge, understanding, and experience, which can apply to many walks of life, many aspects of living. Now, the knowledge of certainty has to do with listening to a lecture, reading a book, studying a scripture, in which you have certainty in an intellectual sense. You're listening and you're learning and you're looking at these types of teachings and they're making sense at their level in terms of intellectual knowledge. So it's useful. It's useful to have that beginning. But there's something much more deep than that. It's known as the seeing of certainty. It's when you have a dream that is so intense that you feel it is greater and more real than your physical life. You're seeing it. You're just perceiving in that state and you're accessing a type of experience that is beyond the senses. So what people call astral projections, out-of-body experiences, your death experiences, this is seeing of certainty, the seeing of certainty, in which you have certainty that there's something more than just the body. But there's something more profound than that as well. There's the truth of certainty. The truth of certainty has to do with when your experiences are coinciding with the physical facts and that you know you've received guidance from the divine, from an inner source. You can compare the knowledge of certainty to hearing about a fire in some other part of the country. The seeing of certainty is like seeing the fire for yourself. Very distinct. You can read a textbook, but when you actually do it, it's a very different thing. 
And then the truth of certainty is being burned by fire. These can apply to different states of being. So I mentioned an example of having a nightmare, the seeing of certainty, in which you are perceiving a state that is real. You are interacting, whether it's our own mind or perhaps other qualities of being, within a different state that is inaccessible to the senses. Now, a nightmare, in reality, can be caused by a number of things. For one, we are perceiving a deeper part of ourselves that is really beyond the range of our ordinary perception. So we can have dreams of uh, being persecuted or killed or even killing things that we would never do in our daily life and yet are there. That is seeing the certainty and being certain of our own inner hell. A nightmare is merely seeing what religions have called infernal worlds, negative states. And obviously we wake up and we feel relieved that it's over. Some people may have this problem, they have recurring nightmares. And what those types of experiences are showing is that there are very deep-seated traumas within the mind rooted in anger and pride and lust and fear and vanity and doubt that are trapping part of our consciousness within that state. So actually having a nightmare as difficult and painful as that might be, it can be a blessing because we're seeing something in us that needs to change. We're seeing the reality of ourselves and having certainty of the truth that just as there is a hell, there is also a heaven. We can really acquire the truth of certainty. Because there's not only infernal states of being that are accessible to us, we can access what religions have called heaven, in which all those conditions of mind, like all those defects I mentioned, are stripped away. They're gone. In which you're vibrating with a level of being that is superior. Heavenly states in which all the different prophets that came to humanity were teaching people to experience, to know. That is the truth of certainty, when we realize that there is something more than just what modern science or perhaps our contemporary culture would have us believe. So what are astral projections? This has to do with when we physically go to sleep every night. The issue becomes, are we conscious of the process of falling asleep? Might seem like a catch-22 or a conundrum, a paradox. How can you be awake when you go to sleep? The reality is that your physical body goes to sleep every night, and the consciousness, our soul, the root of our very being, our perception, because it's not active, we tend to go to bed and then we wake up eight hours later, and we don't remember anything. Now, the reality, if we really train ourselves and learn to experience this for ourselves, is that whenever we go to sleep physically, we enter the dream state. We enter the dream world. We project every night. We just don't have consciousness of it. We're not aware of it. This is verifiable when, if you practice some of these exercises that we're going to be teaching sequentially in this course, 
you can see this where if you have a conscious astral projection in which your body goes to sleep but your soul is awake, you learn to transition with lucidity, with intentionality, with will. And eventually with practice, it becomes very familiar and a very welcome thing. I know some people can get scared. What's happening, right? Some of us might have already had an experience where we were astral projecting and perhaps we lost that experience. We just got scared. We got emotional or we're fearful. It's normal to fear what we don't know. But the truth is that we do it every night. It's just a matter of becoming accustomed to it and becoming aware of it. So who can astral project? Some people think it is the gift of an exceptional few. In reality, anyone can train themselves to do it at will. So it's not because some people perhaps receive the grace of God and are able to do it intentionally. It's a matter of training. It's just becoming aware of ourselves, especially throughout the day. Mindfulness is very popular, especially in many uh, contemporary spiritual schools. We talk a lot about it a lot. But we all can learn to astral project at will, enter that dreaming state with intentionality, when we develop the faculties of the consciousness, such as being aware of ourselves at all times, being mindful, learning to concentrate so that instead of having a mind that's dispersed and distracted amongst many things or different thoughts as we're going to sleep, we focus on one thing, one exercise. And by integrating our willpower, our consciousness, our concentration, we go into that state with clarity. We also develop exercises of visualization, which is very popular in meditation schools, especially, especially Tibetan Buddhism. By learning to visualize images in the mind, we develop the faculty that allows us to deeply perceive dreams. It's the same faculty. It's the same characteristic. Those who have a more robust ability to imagine and concentrate on one thing, one visualization, and be able to see the different colors of an object, the different details with real intensity or detail, are able to awaken in dreams much more easily because you're using the same faculty. And also learning to develop a relationship with divinity in ourselves. That's something that comes with time, obviously, with practice. When you experience these things, obviously they inspire you. They fuel your efforts. So there are four ways we can really experience the astral dimension. One of them is by being conscious when we astral project at night, whenever we go to sleep. Some people awaken in their dreams. They are dreaming and suddenly they realize, I'm in the dream world. I'm not here physically. And there's different techniques you can use to verify and test the reality of where you're at so that you know. People have also had near-death experiences. Like in the Netflix show, Surviving Death, one lady mentioned how she died on a rafting trip and they brought her back and she was able to talk about what happened. So she entered the astral world, came back because it wasn't her time yet. Or we can die and that's the last way one enters the astral world. 
So it's interesting that, you know, either when we die or when we go to sleep, we enter that region. Some people ask, what is the astral plane like? In truth, it is a material dimension. It's interesting because for a lot of people, if we just have dreams, things can be very vague or incoherent. But when you remove all the subjective conditions of mind and learn to access that state with an awakened consciousness, we see that there are cities, there's Chicago, there's people driving cars, people are doing things that they do normally in their physical life. Nothing vague there. The reality is that it's a type of matter and energy that is not as dense as this physical world, which is why people have reported having dreams of flying, passing through walls, putting their hand through a glass window, for example. That's one thing I used to like to do when I first started testing. If I'm here physically or in the internal world, I'd go up to a window and just press my finger slightly with the will that I'd put my hand through it because it's more subtle. You do it. So then you can realize I'm dreaming. But it's a type of matter and energy. It's, there's a reality there. It's just less materialistic. It's less dense. Laws like levitation, elasticity, plasticity, ductileness, you're basically able to even pull your finger, see it stretch, fly to distant places. You can drink a cup of water there. You eat and drink in the astral plane. It's just very different. So some people also ask, what are lucid dreams? This has to do with having more vibrancy in our dreams, in our inner experiences. We may have a moment in which we see something with greater expansiveness or perception, greater depth, and we wake up. Or having a lucid dream is basically you're seeing more to what's there. There's a greater range of perception there. You see more colors there than you see physically. But what's interesting about lucid dreaming is that just because we're seeing a panorama of what's there, it doesn't necessarily mean that we realize where we're at. We could be dreaming and having all this great images or perceiving things in a new way, but we don't really realize that we're dreaming. I know some people like to say, you know, lucid dreaming has to do with waking up, but we make a very clear distinction between a dream and a vision in these studies. Dreaming has to do with your projecting from your mind onto that screen of reality. So you're seeing and interacting with your own contents of your psychology. But a vision has to do with when you let all of that subside, you let it all rest, and you receive new insights. But also lucid dreaming is, is a wonderful gateway to a deeper knowledge because if you realize or see greater range in your perceptions of dreams, it means that you're gonna be able to see more but there's some more steps that are necessary to transcend. So how do I perceive the astral plane? We have to train our consciousness. Concentration, imagination, meditation. These are techniques that will aid us to really knowing these truths. And how does one navigate the internal worlds? With familiarity, you get familiar with it. 
in the beginning, we can get scared. I remember one of my first astral projections when I was really young, I was terrified because I was lifting out of my body and levitating above my bed and seeing things with more depth than physically was possible. And so my fear took me out. But eventually, by getting used to that process, now when that happens, I just get really happy because now it's another wonderful opportunity to pursue my spiritual life internally. You learn to navigate the internal worlds just in the same way that you learn to ride a bike. You learn the neighborhood. You learn where to go, where not to go. And with the guidance of your parents, meaning not just physical instructors, but your inner divinity, you learn. Some people have asked, is astral projection dangerous? No. We do it every night. If it were dangerous, no one would be alive. Primarily because you fall asleep. Every time you sleep, you go into the astral dimension. People who don't go in the astral dimension have insomnia. They can't sleep. So it's good to take care of that. Can I get lost in the astral plane and not return to my body? You can't. A lot of traditions have talked about what's known as the silver cord, the Antakarana thread. It's very popular in astral literature where you have a silver core that connects you with your physical body. You basically can travel throughout the planet. You can go to other planets of the solar system, even to the edge of the galaxy if you want. And yet, that cord will bring you back to your body when it's time, when you wake up. The only time that cord gets cut and the person can't return to the body is when it's their time to die. And that's something that's governed by divine beings. We call them the angels of death. And I know in our popular imagination, we think of these hooded skeletal figures with a scythe as something very demonic and terrifying. It's because we're not familiar with the process of dying. We're not aware of it. We don't remember, perhaps in previous lives, when we entered this life and how we had died many times before. That's something you can also verify from experience by learning to astral project. But these beings are very divine. Personally, I've met one such being. When I saw this angel, I was crying because it was so powerful, the presence of divinity. And this is some type of being that can really guide us about the process of sleep and death if we learn to train ourselves. Can one be injured in the astral plane? No. So you can jump off a roof, end up like Neo in the Matrix, landing on your face first on the pavement. You're not going to get hurt. It's because your astral vehicle, that body you use in dreams, is again subjected to laws of elasticity, plasticity, levitation. You can't get hurt like that. Also, can entities take over my body during astral projection? No. It's not like you leave your body and then someone else can creep into your house, your physical body. Can't happen. You belong to your car, so to speak, or your car belongs to you, better said. Your body is a vehicle that you operate, you drive it every day. If you want someone else to take over your car and drive your car for you, well, 
That's what mediums are for. And we don't recommend that practice because mediumship, allowing different entities to enter oneself is a practice we don't teach. So it's not like you can leave your physical body behind and someone can sneak in. Can't happen. Now, what's interesting about the relationship between sleep and death is the Greek myth of hypnos and thanatos. So I touched briefly upon how we enter the world of death every night whenever we go to sleep. Whenever we go to bed and we dream, we are in the world of the dead. The problem is that we're not aware of it. Hypnos and Thanatos in Greek, sleep and death, were brothers because the ancient Greeks knew that relationship. And they taught that if we want to awaken after death, we have to awaken in dreams. It's the same process as going to sleep. The question becomes, how do we become conscious during dreams? And what does it mean to awaken consciousness? The Tibetan Buddhists mentioned that Every time you go to sleep, it's like you're dying, a little death, which is a quote from Samal as well. It is stated that a dream is nothing but a small death. This is from Gazing at the Mystery. Our consciousness is not awakened to its full potential. While we have a degree of perception in this physical world, it's very limited. It's conditioned and it's censored through many layers and factors. We call it Thoughts, feelings, sentiments, anxieties, worries, daydreams, fantasies, preoccupations, resentments, hatreds, desires, appetites. Oftentimes we're so dedicated in our Western culture to just catering to our bodies that we forget to be aware of ourselves, even of breathing. This is why all meditative traditions teach. We learn to be mindful in the day, especially. Because if we're mindful and awake in our physical body, when we physically go to sleep, we're going to awaken in dreams. It's the same process. Your eight hours of sleep are a barometer for how awake you are. It could be a very scary proposition. If we go to bed and eight hours pass, we don't see anything. It means that we're very unconscious. However, if you have dreams, it means we can start to nudge the door open a bit more until we finally enter the temple of mysteries. Even Plato mentioned in the Republic, using an example of a negative person, the most evil type of man in his waking hours has the qualities we found in his dream state. Now, it applies not just to bad people, but good people. We have preoccupations and thoughts and worries, daydreams, perhaps... We're driving to work. We have a certain routine we go through. We take the train. Maybe we're thinking so much we're remembering the past. We forget our stop. We're not awake. We're driving our car. We're thinking of our friend, and then suddenly we nearly get into an accident. It means we're not paying attention. We're not conscious. We're not aware. And most people tend to go to sleep and merely just repeat their daily life physically within the dream state. It's because we're not 
really focusing on our internal states. We tend to go through life mechanically, just reacting to different situations. However, if you learn to become awake of the process of your moment-to-moment life, your daily states, you start to expand your consciousness within dreams. This brings us to a point about four states of consciousness that we study. These are Hindu terms. Sushupti is profound sleep. Swapna is dreaming sleep. Jagrat is waking consciousness. And Turiya is spiritual illumination. The easiest categorization of this dynamic has to do with physically you go to sleep, Shushupti. And Swapna is when you dream. A lot of people associate within yoga Jagrat as being physically awake. But it's wrong. The truth is that these are qualities of consciousness, not whether or not you're in your physical body or not. Profound sleep is when, like when we go to bed, eight hours go by, we're not awake. But also physically, if we go through our occupation and our day, oblivious, perhaps even to physical danger on the street or on the train or driving a car, it means that we're not conscious. I'm pretty sure we can all think of moments in our day or perhaps try to remember months ago what you ate for breakfast on a Tuesday. We can't remember In our contemporary culture, we like to accept this type of distracted state of mind. But the truth is that, spiritually speaking, it indicates for us that we're not aware. We're not conscious. We can't remember where we went two years ago for a vacation or amongst friends. What we said, what we thought, what we felt, what we did. We're not awake. We don't remember. That's profound sleep. In certain cases, too, shushupti has to do with a common state of barbarism in humanity. In one context, it has to do with mob mentalities. For example, you see people get into fights on the street or commit violence, who go to war. That's shushupti. Because people who are conscious of the humanity of other beings would never kill will never commit violence, even in their thoughts. So we can see that we all have this inside. We tend, even eight hours in the bed, we don't remember anything. That's Sushupti as well. Swapna is interesting. It not only has to do with dreams at night, when the physical body is at rest, but all the dreams we engage with in the day. We're washing dishes and we're thinking of a television show we want to watch. We're riding our bike, thinking of our neighbor. We had a conflict at work and we're ruminating about what they said and are anticipating our own revenge. We're always projecting our mind and thoughts into other things and never looking at where we're at. We're not concentrated. We're not lucid. We're dreaming. And physically, if you're dreaming all day, then at night, will dream as well. This is why all religions teach the need to awaken. This is Jagrat. Has to do with adopting a certain discipline in which you pay attention all the time. 
we observe not only our body, but with the psychological senses of the consciousness. We learn to observe the sources of even of our thoughts, our emotions, our impulses. We learn to become aware of all that. And then we develop the continuity of paying attention all day and not getting distracted by anything. That's mindfulness. It is the continuity of perception. It is tantra, the continuum and flow of awareness at all times. When you really develop that in yourself, you can begin to get glimpses of Turiya, spiritual illumination, in which we perceive things without conditions or filters, without prejudice, without bias. It's a state of consciousness that is very dynamic and applies to a profound range. It has to do with perceiving with objectivity. It is perceiving like a god. And you can have that in dreams, especially physically. You can experience glimpses of illumination like that. But especially when you go to sleep with an awakened consciousness, you can be given certain visions from divinity that are very beautiful and so penetrative that we could not do it on our own. It's a grace and gift of divinity. But also when the conditions are right, the cause and effects are applicable, we have set the foundations for experiencing that type of insight, it emerges. And going back to that Sufi teaching, you find that it has to do with the truth of certainty. Because when you have that type of experience, you, you have great joy. But the thing to remember is that just having a temporary experience like that doesn't mean that we're permanently enlightened. It's a glimpse into what's possible. It can be given to us as a gift, but also to sustain that takes training. A lot of people ask, can machines, frequencies, synthetic sounds, binaural beats affect the brain and awaken consciousness? A lot of people have approached astral projection wanting to use different material techniques to produce a spiritual phenomenon. And unfortunately, it's mistaken. It's not that simple. For those of you who are not familiar with binaural beats, it has to do with listening to two simultaneous tones, one at a slightly different frequency, so that when you're listening, it creates the illusion of hearing a third beat, which is in your brain, in order to produce a type of mental state. So there have been certain studies about how synthetic sounds or artificial sounds can produce astral projections, primarily from the perspective that it is the brain that we're trying to affect and that the brain is something that is malleable and can be influenced easily so as to awaken consciousness. It's true that you can have experiences with these things, but the question is of what quality and what state. Merely having an astral projection is not enough because there can be superior astral projections or there can be inferior astral projections. And this is something that many people ignore, unfortunately. As I mentioned to you briefly, like that ladder of Jacob, there are heavenly states and there are inferior states. There are more liberated, unconditioned, luminous, unobstructed, clear, divine perceptions. 
And then there are conditioned, selfish, negative, egotistical states. Heaven and hell. We emphasize that spiritual experiences cannot be influenced by mechanical means. Primarily because if you're trying to influence the brain to do things for you, it's treating oneself like a machine. Machines know how to react. They're conditioned and they're constructed in such a way as to react to influences. Now, the brain, we have to remember, is merely a vehicle. It's a car that we drive. Who's driving the car, though? The consciousness is not the brain. The brain is a vehicle of consciousness. It is not the originator of perception. We use the brain and our physical body in order to interact in this physical world. But it is just that. It's a machine that you can operate with intelligence or perhaps you're working in a, in a franchise or a fast food restaurant or a meatpacking plant. You're just doing things mechanically. You're not thinking because you just have so much to do. These machines and mechanical methods cannot produce the type of unconditioned awakening that we seek if we're sincere. Projections, again, can be conditioned by external influences, such as by synthetic sounds and frequencies, binaural beats. But those will awaken perceptions that are conditioned. So awakening is dual. I know in modern spiritual circles, people like to think of awakening as something positive, but there are two forms. If you look at the statements of Daniel in the Bible, some shall awake to everlasting life, and some to everlasting shame and contempt. Because there are ways to awaken powers and abilities like this, whether for good or for ill. So there's a distinction there. So we don't rely on these types of things. We don't need to in order to have positive spiritual experiences. There are many more intrinsic ways to do this. A lot of people have also asked, can drugs, psychedelia, and antioxidants produce astral projections? They do, but down in the infernal worlds. Primarily because whenever you ingest a intoxicant, it is a condition. It is conditioning the consciousness. It is stimulating the consciousness to act, but within pride, anger, fear, laziness, lust, hatred, etc. There are ways to experience these truths without relying on anything outside of us, but inside. So if you're interested in learning more of the nuances of this topic, you can study an article we wrote on our website. It's called How Drugs Affect Our Spiritual Development. We go into a lot more detail there that we have the time to elaborate here. But that's the synthesis. A question becomes, how do I interpret my dreams? I've talked a little bit about heaven and hell. We see that represented on the graphic on the left. This is the Hebrew Kabbalah the tree of life. It is the mysticism of all religions, not just Judaism. It is a map of consciousness from the inferior to the superior, levels of being, levels and states of perception. We have our physicality, which is this bottom sphere. We call it Malkut, which is the kingdom, because we need to reign and rule in our kingdom, our body. But there are superior states or spheres. We call them sephiroth in Hebrew. 
emanations from an unknowable divine abstraction or source, and which we seek to return to in our studies. But there are also the inversion, which are the hell realms. We use the Kabbalah as a map in the same way that you travel to another country. You learn the language. You learn about places to go, the geography, the culture, the customs, so that you can be more informed and know how to navigate with facility. This image is precisely the same thing, but for the internal worlds. If you want to understand your dreams and where you're dreaming or where you're experiencing things, we study and apply this glyph. It is deep and it is very scientific, very precise, and can give us clarity and understanding about how to understand what we're seeing. We also use the tarot. On the right, we have the Eternal Tarot deck from Glorian Publishing. We use what's known as the Major Arcana. These are principles and laws of nature depicted through images. And the numbers themselves represent spiritual principles. So some of us might have had dreams where we received a date or a number or a time. It's Kabbalah. Kabbalah in Judaism is the science of numbers, how numbers represent abstract principles, which within a dream are applied to certain situations and dramas. For example, you may have a dream of a certain situation in which you receive a number. And that number, especially 1 through 22, relating to the first 22 cards of the Tarot, give us insight about what's happening there, or what we need to do about a certain situation in life. These are very deep principles. There's a lot of extensive knowledge available about them, especially in our website. You can study the Eternal Tarot of Alchemy and Kabbalah if you want to go into depth about what these cards mean. And even receiving a card in the astral dimension, you can actually see these images. Personally, I remember even receiving a tarot reading from an Egyptian initiate in the astral plane who was showing me certain cards related to what I needed to develop and coincided with this. Now, these cards, they are living art. While they're described through Egyptian imagery and mysticism, they're really universal. The tarot are beyond just the Egyptian cultural phenomenon. They were even older than our humanity, even other worlds with other humanities, the same laws. We just contextualize them with Egyptian images because it's convenient for our understanding. But the truth is that these 22 laws apply to everywhere in the universe, and they all represent different qualities. So we study them so that when we receive a number in our dreams and we perform certain calculations with how the different numbers add up to a unified synthesis or sum, we get the meaning. And we don't get confused about what we perceived. This is why we emphasize in our tradition, all traditions are precious pearls strung upon the golden thread of divinity because all religious forms embody the same principles, like the Tarot. These numbers apply to all religions. And if you study the scriptures themselves with the knowledge of what the Tarot mean, you find that they all say the same thing. 
It is the intuitive grammar and building block of meaning from the spirit. Because the different cards can, and numbers can add up together, work together, and create a synthesis. Very elegant. It's very extensive. But more importantly, it's very simple. As we learn it, we study, we apply it. So all these traditions represent these truths. Some people have asked, should I use dream symbol dictionaries? We always emphasize the need for independent thought, self-reliance, investigation. It's very easy to open up a book and to look for the symbol and try to get an answer. That's the most normal reaction to have when we're learning to experience dreams. We want to know what we're seeing and see what other people have said. Personally, my preference is to rely on what the prophets have taught. Beings who have really demonstrated through millennia their caliber because there are a lot of books out in the world that are presented by people who've never reached that level of development. And it's good to rely on guidance and instructors, but proven ones. Prophets like Jesus or Buddha, Moses, Krishna, who through the scriptures have related in their symbols the very fabric of meaning within our spiritual path. When it's applied to our spiritual work, we can really interpret what's going on there. So the thing about dream dictionaries is that they lack intuition. And here's why. You can look at a symbol within a dictionary and look at one level of meaning of it. But there are many layers to a dream, to a dream symbol. It's very extensive. Perhaps you have a dream of a cross. I've had that before in relation to a kind of work that I needed to do. But the overall tone was a state of suffering. You're bearing your cross and you will have ordeals. That was the meaning that played out in relation to my physical life, certain hardships I had to face. But the cross is not just about suffering. It can represent the four elements, earth, air, fire, water, or related to our psychology, mind, emotions, physicality, and sexuality, different aspects of our constitution. We also have to look at what's happening in relation to the symbol. Were we carrying the cross? Was it in front of us? What happened? There's a lot of applications and things that don't get codified within one strict book. This is why even in diverse religious traditions, you don't find a book with an absolute meaning for everything. Although that's what a lot of people think when they think about their religion. But the truth is that all these teachers taught, all these prophets taught in accordance with their capacities and also the level of development of the student. And so while their insights are valuable, it's also good to look at all religions to see how they all complement. Now, that's even to the level of a prophet who can give really deep insight. But just studying one source isolated by itself, it's like we're, we're not looking at the bigger picture. And the problem with dream dictionaries is that you find a lot of the testimonies of these different people are very contradictory. They conflict with each other. The reality is that if you want genuine guidance and insight, 
from the dreams. We have to look from sources that really agree. They all say the same thing. It's all unified. It all points in the same direction. And when we have that foundation and see how it relates to our experiences, we have confidence in the source. But the problem is that there are too many contradicting opinions, mostly made from people who have not reached those heights. So it's out of caution for our own development. It's good to be prudent. A lot of people ask, we've gotten this question from people before too, can someone interpret my dreams for me? And this also begs an interesting question too. Obviously, we have that yearning to know what a dream means. We look for insight, perspective. And so we might go to people to hopefully provide that for us. But this relates to an interesting dynamic within students, especially. The Talmud states, a dream not interpreted is like a letter not read. And most people in the beginning don't know how to read spiritually. We have a dream. We don't know what it means. We want someone else to read it for us. What would be better? Relying on someone to read and teach you through what they can read or learning to read yourself? Isn't it true that a person who does not know to read is vulnerable? Someone could tell you this is what it means. Even, for example, they don't know what it means or they have bad intentions. We don't know. And because we don't know, we should be cautious. Be prudent. Because dreams are important. They're essential to really mastering our spiritual life, learning to awaken there. Therefore, we should really be critical, not just of other people, but of our own selves. This need and this desire for security, right? We, have, we want to be secure in our spiritual life. We want someone to tell us that everything's okay or to tell us this is what it means. It doesn't work that way. In reality, the magic of dreams unfolds as we meditate, practice meditation, learn the science of meditation, become a self-reliant meditator. This is because Really, we can unpack meanings and unfold the significance of a dream over many years. Personally, I've had dreams that happened decades ago that have only come true recently. And part of the awe and joy of that realization comes from having worked on myself, not going to other people, tell me what this means. If you learn to study genuine sources, such as learning Kabbalah and the Tarot, and learn the diverse symbolism within different traditions, you gain a very expansive lexicon by which to interpret what's happening. It gets easier. It gets intuitive. So in the beginning, we study intellectually different sources, but the real work comes in meditation. Put aside the mind. Put aside thought. The desire and the fear, I want this to mean a certain thing the anticipation that I want a certain result, this is what I want the dream to mean. And this is where people can get into problems, especially 
Having a dream, thinking it means one thing, but it means another. Therefore, why get another person in the mix? Especially when we don't know from experience their qualifications. So it's good to be prudent. How do we know if a dream is real or not? We make a distinction as earlier, we mentioned that there's a difference between dreams and visions. A dream is a projection of our mind, which in its levels and qualities of perception and states can either be more objective or less. But the mind, for most of us, is very heavy. We have a lot of errors. We have flaws. We're not perfect. We have defects. We have fear and anxiety, the yearning for security, ambition, perhaps maybe not for physical things, but perhaps for spiritual things. We have a lot of qualities in our mind that are really best described as desire, ego. We desire something, we want something, and therefore we try to feed our desires. These are conditions. The soul is something different. The soul can feel great joy and aspiration, yearning for the truth, love for others, philanthropy, kindness, compassion, patience. And the consciousness that realizes its true nature doesn't dream. It sees. It has visions. It knows. So a dream is a projection of our mind. We're enmeshed in our desires. And as we mentioned about going through our day, being lost in daydreams, that's like being lost in in thought, reverie, memory, sleep. But a vision is when the mind is calm, it's receptive, it's at peace, and we are seeing the reality of what's before us, whether physically or internally. This is why Salman Vior, who's the founder of our tradition, stated in a lecture called Mental Representations, true illuminates have no dreams. Dreams are for those who are asleep. True illuminates live in the higher worlds, out of the physical body, in a state of intensified wakefulness without ever dreaming. There are many examples of beings like this. Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, Krishna, Moses. We can go on forever. They did not have a sleeping consciousness. They did not dream. Physically, they can go to sleep at will and project in the internal worlds at will for as long as they wanted because they were so exact and rigorous with themselves that they reached a high standard and therefore they taught it to others. We can do the same. Some people have asked, what can I do through astral protection? It's a lot of things. And I find this is perhaps one of the most compelling points about these types of studies, which drew me into studying and practicing this. Through astral projection, we can receive divine teachings. We can communicate with our inner God. We can receive insight about difficult situations and how to solve them with efficacy, with complete equanimity. We can also explore the superior and inferior worlds, such as demonstrated by this graphic on the right, the tree of life, the heavens and the hell realms. In the astral world, you can visit other planets. You can see the humanities that dwell there. And when we talk about other humanities, we're not talking about little green men. 
with antennae and perhaps little crustacean features or something really exotic and disturbing like Hollywood would have us presume. But instead, we learn to interact with different species and beings, humanoids, who are very spiritual, who are awake. We can get insight from them. They can help us internally. You can also visit the temples of the universal fraternity of the divine. There are temples in the physical world, such as in Egypt and other places, that are now cadavers. They used to be flourishing with life physically, but internally, they're active. You can go into the temples of Giza and the astral world and receive initiation and guidance from the masters there. Luminous, enlightened beings. There are many temples throughout the world within the internal worlds from all cultures because this type of knowledge is universal. We can invoke genuine spiritual masters. You can learn certain prayers in which you can call onto divinity to send this master to you to teach you. And they can give you guidance. That's really better than relying on anyone physically is when you go internally, you invoke and you ask a master about a solution to a problem and they will always come. Especially, they've perfected themselves. They're here to help. We also can enact, and this is an uncomfortable topic for some people, is spiritual self-defense. Because just as there are heavenly beings, there are also negative beings. We call them demons, call them black magicians sorcerers, warlocks, those who know how to astral project, but within hell. They live and they dwell within the inferior regions of the astral world, the negative infernal planes. And because we have ego, we tend to gravitate towards those states, unfortunately. But with training, we can awaken and change ourselves. But in that process, we do get confrontations, even. But there are proven ways to defend oneself through prayer, through sacred invocations. We call them conjurations. This is where the term magic came from, is learning how to exert the consciousness in its defense so that it's not influenced by any negativity. And so these methods that we teach in courses like spiritual self-defense on our website goes into very great detail about how to practice that. And they work, but with training, with time, we learn to practice these techniques in the same way that you go to the dojo to train in martial arts. In the beginning, you're sloppy, and I speak from experience. But with practice, you get very efficient. You can negotiate your destiny with the lords of karma. These are masters who guide and organize the trajectory of humanity. Karma is a very popular term. It means cause and effect. These are beings beyond good and evil. They manage the law of destiny out of compassion. Karma is not some blind law of retribution in which we suffer what we deserve. Instead, despite our past actions and mistakes, we can receive mercy and even go to those hierarchs, such as Anubis in the Egyptian mythology, in order to discuss our problem and how to negotiate it. Because the scales can be balanced in our favor. And we learn to do that by personally speaking with the lords of the law. 
We can also face and conquer ordeals. This has to do with certain tests the student can face as a means of provoking and pushing us to develop. So in our spiritual path, we learn to overcome certain adversities and hardships, whether physically, but also in the internal worlds. You can have symbolic dreams that represent certain challenges that you need to overcome. And so those are always managed by divinity. We have related a little bit in our courses previously, but you'll find more about that specifically in the secret path of initiation on our website. We can enter initiation, meaning enter a new way of life. Meaning to be welcomed among the gods, to become perfect like the gods. Also see in the same course, Secret Path of Initiation. We talk about that. The degrees and stages by which one reunites with the divine and so is welcomed by those who walked before. We also, lastly, can watch and view the Akashic Records, receive prophecies. This is a very compelling topic. I know a lot of people have talked about the Akashic Records. It's basically like a film in nature. In the astral world, which is very fluidic in the sense that it's very impressionable, it relates to emotions, sentiment, a subtle form of matter energy. In that dimension, everything is recorded, every action. Even if you speak into an old tape recorder, you find that there are geometric shapes that are imprinted in the film. The same thing with the Akashic Records. All the history of ancient humanities in different civilizations are imprinted within the consciousness and memory of the world, of the astral world. And so if you ask your inner divinity to show you about some ancient point in time or a certain thing that you need to know about the future, you'll see images, you'll see living dramas, a film. It's like watching a movie but you're seeing reality, you're not seeing illusion. You're seeing what happened, what is, and what will be. We can learn to access that and then really understand things about our humanity and our world that are inaccessible to the physical senses. In conclusion, we'll mention that by knowing ourselves, we will know these things. The Oracle of Delphi mentioned, know thyself and thou shalt know the universe and its gods. Hence the importance for learning how to awaken consciousness. So at this time, we're going to open up the floor to questions. We have some questions in the chat, most likely. The other instructor will be reading them for us at the appropriate time. But we also have a lot of people here as well. So feel free to ask. Sure. Uh, when using the tarot, are you supposed to take into account the, the three paragraphs or just the, the final number that you're supposed to add up? Good question. For those of you who are not familiar, when you work with the tarot themselves, such as doing your own reading, we mentioned some of this in the lecture on the magician the first arcanum of the Tarot in our course, the Eternal Tarot. The major arcanum 
sets the tone, one of the first of the 22 cards. So there are 22 major arcana and 56 minor arcana. First, you separate the major arcana from the minor, shuffle them, pull out one card face down. You look at the minor arcana, shuffle, pull out one card, shuffle again, pull out another one. And what you do is you look at their relationship first. You look at the individual cards, but the minor arcana and the major arcana themselves complement. They work together. So just as you form sentences with words, in the same way the different arcana all constitute a certain meaning in the end. So you look at the synthesis, you look at the relationship between them, and then you also look at them independently. So look at them all together. Just one quick follow-up. How often should one use it? I mean, if you use it every day, it changes. You can use them every day if you want, once a day. If you want to learn about real, genuine spiritual issues, the thing is not to get caught up in when you get an answer to doing the Torah reading again. In the sense, like, you don't like the answer, therefore you want to get another one. And you can't trick divinity. But if you have a certain issue that you want to explore, you work with the Tarot. You can do it once a day even, if you have certain things such as, how should I proceed about my day? What do I need to know? I've done this in the past, especially in order to learn all the different cards. Not just the first 22, but all the minor arcana themselves. So you can do it once a day if you want, but really dedicated to genuine issues. And I want to know, it can be done more than once a day if you have more than one serious spiritual question to ask. Exactly. How can you go about like being successful at meditating? Because I try, but my mind is always like, you got to do this, you got to do that, and it's just like, it's very difficult to try and like keep your mind blank and not think about anything. Sure. It's a learned skill. We have some resources online. You can study courses we gave, such as Gnostic meditation and the Sufi principles of meditation, teaching meditation with the Sufi scriptures. We did a whole course on that. I also like more uh, on Glorian.org, Meditation Essentials. That's a very synthesized and very refined way of explaining meditation, step by step, with weekly exercises, I recommend that especially. So if you study that on Glorian.org, practice each of the exercises for each week, for each lecture, you'll get very profound results. You, it teaches you basically that image we talked about, the nine stages of meditative concentration, and elaborates on a lot. So I highly recommend it. You're welcome. Yes? You mentioned that um, with out-of-body experiences, it happens as you're falling asleep. But then I know the dream state is through REM, so that doesn't usually happen until after you've been sleeping for a while. So what's the difference between those two in terms of the timing? Sure. And what happens when you're out of body? Like, do you immediately go into that realm? Or do you kind of, as you said, you see yourself and then you go into the realm? Sure. So there's a deep connection between the brain and our internal life. Because like the Antakarana thread, we are united with our physical world and our internal worlds. Now, a lot of people record having deeper dreams and experiences with REM sleep. 
when you're really deeply within the internal worlds themselves. It doesn't mean that people are actually projecting during REM. The reality is that we're projecting in the initial phases of sleep as you're stripping away your identity, such as when you're falling asleep, you see memories and dreams and voices and sounds and all sorts of landscapes or whatever it may be. That's indicating to us a type of process in which we're starting to increase the light of perception, in which you are in the process of entering slowly in the dream state. Now, a lot of people get caught up in those initial phenomena, and then they are unconscious again. And then they might later have an experience relating to deeper stages of sleep, REM. Now, in Tibetan Buddhism, we talk a lot about the four lights. We're going to have a whole lecture about this especially. In the beginning phases, we start to perceive that we're about to dream. But if you maintain your concentration in that process, you enter willingly. But with REM sleep, we've already been in the astral plane for a couple of hours, typically. But with training and learning to awaken your consciousness, you can be fully lucid throughout the entire time, even to the point that you physically leave your body, go into the astral world for a couple of hours, physically, terrestrially, and come back with full consciousness and not forgetting anything. So it's possible. I mean, you can have the potential to be that skilled. Very possible. Just takes takes work. Sure. Is uh, sleep paralysis, is that our ego not wanting to leave our body? Some people have reported sleep paralysis, especially associated with nightmares even. You know, you return, you're in your body and you're conscious, but you're not able to physically move. That's usually just the process of sometimes when you're returning to your body, you haven't fully integrated in your physicality in order to be able to move yourself after having come from dreams. It's nothing to be really alarmed about or fearful. I know some people have mentioned, for example, I have a relative who had sleep paralysis associated with nightmares. Like he would see like aliens or some other negative thing coming at him when he's in sleep paralysis and he feels defenseless when that happened. But the thing is not to be identified with it. It's just sometimes you haven't fully gotten your car to start, so to speak. You can't be harmed. So, nothing to worry about. Sure. Is it possible to get to the astral plane through meditation instead of going to sleep? Absolutely. So, actually, with meditation and practicing that skill, we're learning to go to sleep consciously. So, when you meditate with enough skill, you let your body relax, you're fully concentrated within, you're focusing on something you want to investigate, you can imagine whatever the object or goal is, visualize it, and let your body start to slumber. What's interesting about this state of meditation is that we learn to receive new information when all the obscurations are settled, like the sediment in a jar with water and all sorts of elements. If you shake it all the time, which is, tends to be our daily waking state, you have a muddled chaos. But with meditation and learning to apply these principles in our daily states, the sediment begins to stratify and layer itself so that you can begin to see all the different contents of the jug of your mind. And what helps with that when you're learning to meditate is that you learn to fall asleep 
intentionally. It's the same skill. In fact, as you're learning meditation and you learn to go to bed, you're meditating while you're falling asleep, even when you're laying down. So meditation, even in your chair or whatever position, you can learn to do that. Some meditations you might want to, you want to balance that threshold between wakefulness and sleep for certain meditations, but you may find that if you want to learn to ask project, you do so while you're meditating. In fact, the best end result of a real successful meditation is an astral projection because now you leave the body behind, you've removed certain layers that can obstruct your investigation into a certain phenomena, and then you can go. So meditation is a state of mind. It's a quality of being. So when you receive information in a new way. So you're in that meditative state, and does the body always go to sleep? Or can you have visualizations and the body still can be mobile, functional? Great question. The best visualizations occur when we're still, in which you've relaxed enough to the point that your thoughts cease to be a distraction, you're not churning with emotion, your body's not agitated. And when you're perfectly still, meaning you don't move even physically or even internally, mentally, suddenly images appear. They emerge. We don't will them, we don't intend them, but they just arrive. Flashes of insight. You see visions, you see dreamlike symbols, you see experiences, landscapes especially, perhaps. That's indicating that we're approaching it in the right way. You can have certain insights when you're physically active, it's true, but that takes a lot more training. But with time, if you're learning to meditate and you're stealing all the contents of your psychology, those visions appear magically on their own and can really inform us about certain things we need to take care of. Okay, and then so any visualization, I guess, in that aspect would be considered astral projection, regardless? Good question, yeah. Astral projection is when you are conscious of leaving the body. But oftentimes, when you're meditating, what you're doing is you're beginning to enter the threshold of that state. You're not necessarily projecting all the way through, but you are starting to perceive your inner reality. It's like stepping in between the doorway between two chambers, the physical and the internal. And if you're really focused, as you're even receiving these visions and experiences from, the, from the, your internal dream state, you can let your body physically fall asleep and you go out. But sometimes we might have fallen asleep in our meditation and are suddenly seeing all these things too. So there's a different dynamic there too. But you're, in both cases, you're perceiving inner reality. But a natural projection is when you're aware of leaving your body. In some cases, you fall, we fall asleep, we don't have awareness of it at all. So, little difference. There's a lot of online questions. Sure. Can we learn to heal others or ourselves through astral dreaming? Yeah. The important thing is that when you learn to astral project, you use your abilities for good. Learn to use that capacity to help other people. You can do so by learning to investigate the karma of your particular situation, or even another person, if that's something granted by divinity, if it's allowed. 
there are ways to communicate not only with the lords of karma, but also the masters of medicine. There are beings governed by the archangelic hierarchies and influence of an angel known as Raphael, very famous within Christianity and the Judeo-Christian tradition, who can help heal people if it is in accordance with the law and the will of divinity. So you can learn to astral project and go to the temples of healing in order to ask for benediction for those who are suffering, always in accordance with the mercy of the law, the stringency of the law, the rigor of the law, but also out of compassion, we ask, we pray. So you can do that. Yeah. When one awakens consciousness in an astral projection, what are keys to stay awake? We have certain mantras we use. And a mantra is a sacred sound. It's a vibration of force. We know that through regular speech, our words can have blessings or curses. There are proper words and improper words. There are qualities of speech in reflection to the quality of our mind. Words spoken from hate harm the mental atmosphere of people, but compassion and blessings unite communities. In the same way, a mantra is a type of keynote, a sacred sound, which through either physically or mentally vocalizing, like the mantra O, we're learning to attract superior force. One simple mantra you can do, even while you're driving your car, doing it mentally or at work, is OM, prolong the vowels. You sing it mentally. And that type of practice helps to strengthen our concentration so that we're focused on what we're doing. We're aware of what we're doing. We're not distracted. And even when you do that physically, if you learn to train yourself with practice and time, you can be in the astral world suddenly awake and you feel that your consciousness is getting a little weak, a little tired, seeing the mantra mentally. You can even sing it out loud, even in the astral plane. I mean, people are asleep anyways in the astral world. They're not going to care. I know one time I was doing the mantra, Om Tat Sat, repeatedly. And some person in the astral plane was making fun of me. You look weird. I'm like, I didn't say anything because he was asleep, didn't realize you're in the astral plane. So it doesn't matter. Physically, you may not want to say it out loud in front of people because they'll think you're a little strange. But in the astral plane, it doesn't matter. They can judge you, but they're not going to remember if one cannot be harmed in an astral projection, why do we need to enact spiritual self-defense? Good question. Astral projection is not harmful. Learning to transition into the internal worlds is not a problem. The issue becomes is when you encounter beings like sorcerers or demons or black magicians who want to pull you into their path. Now, there's nothing dangerous about transitioning into the internal worlds, but... You can't be hurt in the internal worlds, like if you get punched or hit or you fall over or you scrape yourself. There's no danger to that. The struggle between positive and negative forces occurs in the mind. It's a conscious quality in which certain entities will try to exert their will on you to get you to act the way they want. We call it black magic. But white magic is learning to 
invoke the aid of divinity to work through you so that you can nullify those type of efforts and said, for example, physically, maybe someone comes up to you with a lot of anger, very hateful, very resentful. Maybe we did something wrong. And then if we learn to transform the situation and act kindly with genuine compassion, you diffuse it. In the same way, when you're working with uh, certain prayers, you can learn to nullify those type of influences. But astral projection is not dangerous. Another related question. Should we conjure and protect ourselves in the astral plane even if it is a beautiful angel, deity, etc.? You can, and it's actually recommended be cautious because there are beings who say, yeah, I'm Jesus. Anyone can say that, but it doesn't mean you should trust them. I remember even when I met the Master Jesus, I was scared because when I invoked him, he was a very luminous being and I was so terrified of the intensity of his presence and I felt fear like perhaps I called upon the demon instead. But uh, I started to pray more and eventually clarity came. You can do certain prayers and invocations to uh, ask this entity, show me who you really are. Yeah, so we'll talk more about specific practices later on, but uh, you can call upon divinity to say, show me who you are. Certain uh, conjurations that basically will clear up the astral environment for you so that you can discriminate what's going on. At times in my dreams, I get a sensation of extreme intoxication. It happens suddenly and without taking any intoxicants in or out of my dreams. I feel extremely disoriented and have a very hard time standing up or walking. It feels as though I'm very drunk. I attempt to work through it, but eventually... I have to just sit down. Can you explain what this may be? Those type of dreams that are recurring are showing us something. If something keeps repeating, like a repeating dream, it means that we need to see something about ourselves. Now, feeling like one has no control over the body in dreams, like the astral vehicle, to be drunk in that state could imply that there's a lack of control in one's daily life. Usually dreams will show us something that's going on factually. Something that's happening in your daily state. So there's a relationship there. You should always examine your dreams in relation to your physical life. And if there's a correlation there, then you can have some greater confidence that something is factual here and what you're seeing. So if you feel like you have no control in your dream, examine your life. Examine what's happening in your day. Where do you lack control in your ethics? in your work. During lucid dreaming, do you recommend talking to other dream characters? I notice that most try to convince me I'm not lucid when I wake up. Well, if they're trying to talk you out of being awake, then yeah, ignore them. There's a lot of weird entities that you can encounter and most of them are the projection of our own mind. So if something is starting to distract you in the astral plane, with practice and experience, you learn to Say, okay, I'm going to put this aside. I'm going to go do something else. So that you maintain the continuity of your mindfulness. We have a question over here too. What about sleepwalking? People who get up, fall asleep an hour or two, wake up, start doing things like actively, they're awake, they're talking to you, they go back to bed, and they have no recollection of it the next day. Sure. Yeah. In terms of sleepwalking, I'm not an expert. 
I've known people who've suffered from sleepwalking. And for me, I think it's kind of like having one foot in the dream world and one foot in the body where you're in such a comatose psychological sleep that you're acting in a way that you're just not aware of, right? It's like you're dreaming while awake in the conventional sense. Now, the reality is that sleepwalkers are in a profound state of uh, sushupti, which is the deepest form of psychological unconsciousness. But it's interesting. You know, they can be physically active, but they're not aware of what they're doing. That's a more intensified example of what we do all the time. Now, there are greater intensities to these type of conditions. For us, most people, we tend to get distracted by certain things in the day. We're not really aware. But a sleepwalker, we can see them being unconscious. That's all I could really draw from it. I'm not an expert in that. I know some people can get that treated. Pretty sure there's other sources people could look. Could it maybe be there to identify with their body? And they, so they sleepwalk. Well, in the case of a sleepwalker, they're identified or they're in the body, but they're not aware. So yeah, they are identified with some psychological quality. And that's a really good point to make because the reason why we sleep in a spiritual sense in a psychic sense, is because we are identified with some psychological condition in us. If we're ruminating about a problem, we're stewing in anger. We're identified with anger. We feel that we are that identity, and we're investing all our energy into that in its dreams. And in that way, you lose consciousness of everything else. So we'll talk about, in a future lecture, we'll talk about awakening consciousness in dreams, especially awakening in dreams, where we talk about what does it mean to identify, where you lose your awareness of yourself. Perhaps you're walking down the street and you see some kind of item in a store. Perhaps you go buy a bookstore. That's kind of my guilty pleasure. I'll see a book and the shelves and my energy and my attention goes, is drawn to it where I want to go into the store perhaps. And therefore, if I'm not paying attention, I can get distracted by my desire to go explore. So that's identifying and that leads to sleep. So there's ways to train yourself against that. So yeah, a sleepwalker is identified with something, but even they are not even aware because they're so unconscious. Can you speak on the arcana after the first 22? Why are there minor arcana? So the minor arcana are really, they're an important part of the whole tarot. We focus very extensively on the 22 major arcana because those are the main laws that we investigate. They are really the essential structure of reality. Now, for example, with the 22 arcana, we can associate them with the 22 Hebrew letters. And the 22 Hebrew letters relate to each of these cards. Just because we synthesize everything into 22 characters doesn't mean that we don't look at the other 56. Now, the 56 minor arcana are really important in that they unpack the nuance of the original major arcana. When you get a tarot reading, for example, whatever major arcana you receive, that kind of sets the tone of a larger picture. But then, how does it apply to your life? How does it interrelate to different circumstances? How does it show you what's happening in your spiritual work? Those 
clarify the context for things. And they're really very powerful, intuitive messages and principles. We sum up everything to the 22 because those are the main building blocks for everything. But the 56 minor arcana are also really important to elaborate what's going on. I awoke in my dream but ended up going straight to the hell realms. People or entities there kept grabbing a hold of me. I tried various techniques to get rid of them, but the response was that they can't be banished anywhere because I came to them. I woke up with one still grabbing onto me and I could still see its face. Is it possible to bring entities from the lower realms back to this dimension? I would say, and most people know, there have been certain magicians or practitioners who learn to manifest the astral within the physical, and that takes a certain type of work and discipline. Now, sometimes when we wake up physically from a dream, like a nightmare like that, or a very intense experience, we still have the residue on us. We're still enmeshed from the dream, or meshed in the dream when we physically awake. So you might feel like a psychic sensation even as you're physically awake when you transition back. I would say... From that experience, sounds a lot like your own egos, your own defects, where you were shown and they told you that you came to them. And it's true. We created the ego. And we gravitate towards our own negative conditions of mind because of our own will. Depends on how we want to act. We have a choice in everything. Now, since we understand the teachings and the, and the ways to remedy the problem, we learn to face our own particular karma or situation that we are now in. Not with defeatism or with the feeling like, oh, I'm such a bad person or I can't make it. But instead, we have the tools now. We know right from wrong and therefore we can act and change the situation. But unless you're someone like Iamblichus, like a real... Powerful theurgist, magician who can invoke angels into the physical world. I mean, I wouldn't fear necessarily having a dream like that and suddenly your own egos are going to come after you from the infernal worlds. The reality is that even though they physically are not going to appear, they're with you all the time in your mind. So the solution is just be patient. The statement that you can awaken positively or negatively is extremely intense. Can you give more detail? Can a person awaken negatively by accident, meaning without absolute intent and understanding of what is happening? Or do they have to want that to happen? The essence is always the innocent victim of ego, so I have a hard time understanding these two seemingly opposite ideas. Does that negative awakened state eventually end? Good question. Now, for a lot of us in these types of studies, we tend to carry with us certain defects from past existences. So even though physically we may not have dabbled in black magic or negative arts, it's rare to find someone who doesn't have that ego. Now, for a lot of us who have so much condition of mind, it's very easy to simply push us over the edge. Because... As someone and Vera mentioned, we are typically 97% ego, 3% free. The 3% needs to learn how to work on the other 
like the story of David and the Goliath. David conquered because he had faith in God and a pebble. So, powerful allegory. Now, there are people who willingly and intentionally know that they're practicing that type of art and they enter into it with full consciousness or they enter into it knowingly that these exercises are going to awaken them and because they have those experiences, even though they're within conditioning, within hell, they think it's positive. They don't discriminate what they see. For most of us who are in Gnosis, who have dabbled in that type of thing in the past, past existences, we might have an encounter with another entity that seeing our weakness, our vulnerabilities can target us. And it's exactly the way that these type of situations work. Where a black magician will look for a weakness in your defenses, psychologically speaking, in order to pull you or to awaken you negatively. So sometimes that can happen against our will in the sense like perhaps we're confronted by a black magician and they can disarm us and take our consciousness by especially grabbing your solar plexus is a very vulnerable area. And they take your consciousness and awaken you within your ego. But it doesn't mean that's going to be a permanent state because you can conjure and get your way out of it. You can defend yourself. Get out. And you can return to your physical body and be fine. The reality is that because we have these weaknesses, it doesn't take much to trigger us in certain situations. But it doesn't mean that it's going to last forever. You can get insight and guidance from divinity to uh, help you, especially if you feel like you're tempted or tested internally by these types of negative entities. Personally, I've encountered a lot of them in my work. I've received guidance internally from my inner being who was comforting me, especially after certain situations that were very painful, where I felt like very defeated, like I got beat up by a sorcerer, but then my being says, you have nothing to worry about. It's a learning experience. So be patient. Can we meet our ancestors and loved ones during astral projection? Would they have information specifically for us or about current conditions on Earth? They can. Depends on their level of being. There is an assumption within Judeo-Christianity that, and even Islam that when we physically die, we're going to go into the afterlife with awareness. But it's not true. It's not based in the scriptures. So we can meet loved ones. Personally, I've met people in my family who've died before and I found them in the astral plane, but they weren't awake. They didn't know that they were dead. And that's the case with a lot of people who die. So if you really want to learn about situations on earth and in life, it's good to relate to awakened beings, awakened masters. Sometimes people have recorded moments in their near-death experiences or even astral projections where they met families and loved ones who were comforting them with a lot of light, showing them a strong presence of divinity inside and who were inspiring them that there's something more to this life than just bank accounts. My personal experience with having seen certain family members in the astral has been divinity often takes on forms familiar to us out of comfort. For example, 
I've met people in the Astro who appeared as a relative of mine in order to demonstrate that there's a person in my physical life who is like a brother to me or a sister or whatnot. It's a symbol. But sometimes people who have these type of experiences, they come back to their body and they think that their loved one is awake in the astral plane, but it could be that divinity was just teaching them and giving them a lot of comfort and support through a familiar figure. So there's that dynamic too. But each person needs to analyze and discriminate for themselves to really understand what's going on here. During some of the practices, I learned that I'm having less lucid or mystical dreams now. Could it be that prior to the exercises, I was having lucid dreams based on the ego? And now that I'm going back to the basics to build up in the proper way, is it more of aligning to an egregore? You have to discriminate in yourself. Look at the facts. Examine your quality of life. Now... Divinity will give us experiences, will help us have those experiences when he wants. There are ebbs and flows in perception, in experiences. In the beginning, we tend to get a lot of light. Divinity inspires us through experiences to push us to want to study these things. But you may find that as you're practicing the knowledge, suddenly you don't have experiences. And there's an interesting dynamic here. Light comes and goes. There are periods of light and darkness, sun and moon, so to speak, philosophically speaking. The thing to remember is that the practices don't put one to sleep. They work. But there are many factors that go into play. What's the karma of your situation? What does your being want for you? Because sometimes having experiences can be a problem. Having a lot of visions and thinking that one is a god. And therefore God says, you are a megalomaniac. Meaning, you're too proud. Therefore, they cut it off from you. And we learn by bringing light into our own darkness. Not by being in the heavens, so to speak. So, look to your karma. Investigate it. Pray to your being, what does he want for you? And be patient because those types of experiences will come and go when the conditions are ripe, when they're necessary. Any other questions here? Well, I thank you all for coming. Appreciate our online audience. We'll continue next month. Thank you. Sir. Thank you. Thank you. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. We thank you for listening. 
We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.